Good morning. Got a quick announcement. Uh, I was talking with Ann at the beginning of the class, and she said, boy, I'd love to go with you on a trip to Israel with you, but I haven't been vaccinated. And I thought, well, you know, you don't have to be vaccinated to go to Israel anymore. So if you don't know that, you don't have to be. So there's the announcement. That changed uh, March 1st, so you no longer have to be vaccinated. You can travel to the Holy Land and enjoy the wonderful experience there. I read in the news this week about a new law that is going to go into effect this summer in New York City. I was actually really surprised at this law. It's uh, pretty funny. The city is going to implement what they call a walking speed minimum. It is a tri- listen. It is a trial program for crosswalks in tourist-heavy areas of New York City. Let me let me read a part of this article. The article said, "Quote: The New York City Department of Transportation said that you can be ticketed for not walking fast enough. This is called the slow poke citation. <laughs> there can also be tickets given for anything that delays the flow of traffic." with the most severe penalty for those who fully stop in the middle of a sidewalk to take pictures or standing aimlessly in front of a subway entrance. Of course, exceptions will be made for the elderly and others who can't maintain speed for physical reasons, with separate lanes being implemented on select sidewalks. (laughs) Then the article said, April Fool's. (laughs) Now, I believed it all the way up to that moment because that's something that New York City would do. In fact, it said, uh, it said, April Fool's, this isn't going to happen, but we wish it would. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you where the slowpoke citations really need to be, and that's in the fast lane of Interstate 35. I mean, it's like, if, I'm, I don't want to speed, but I at least want to go the speed limit. So let me go around you if you're ever in the fast lane. You see me back there doing this. (laughs) Well, after I read that article, I thought, you know, if, if that law was actually made law, then I'm not sure God would make it in New York City. Because God sometimes is a slowpoke in our lives, isn't he? He will stand in front of us while we're trying to get around. And he will stop in the middle and take photographs when it's time to hustle and get across the street. We're driving in the fast lane and God is the grandmother in front of us in the Studebaker going 45 (laughs) and won't let us get around. Is there anything more difficult in life than waiting on God? Yes, wishing you had. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 43 as we continue our journey through the life of Joseph. Joseph, as you remember, was the favored son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was number 11. So all these 10 older brothers resented Joseph being the favored son. In fact, so much they hated him so much, were so jealous of him, that they sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph was there 
uh, shouldn't have been there, didn't deserve to be a slave in Egypt. But even though he was a slave in Egypt, God caused him to prosper. He prospered in the house of his master. Even after he was falsely accused and put in prison, he prospered in prison. And while in prison, he uh, interpreted the dreams of two fellow prisoners and interpreted them correctly. They actually came true. And this harkens back to remind us of Joseph's own dreams that God gave him way back in chapter 37 when we started. And these were the dreams that God told Joseph that your family, uh, that you will rule over your family, that you will, they will come and they will bow down to you. And so Joseph knew that this was a prophecy, that this wasn't just, you know, his hopes, the aspirations of a young man with high hopes for life. This was God's promise, God's prophecy for him. And the whole narrative, I mean, the brothers basically say, you know, when they, when they strip off his multicolored cloak and they sell him as a slave, they say, now let's see what will become of his dreams. And that's the tension for the whole story of Joseph. That's, in some sense, the tension for our lives because we have that same struggle. I mean, not with Joseph's dreams, but with God's promises. God gives us promises and they look great. We'd love for those things to come true now, except God's in the slowpoke lane, and he's tough to get around. And we've got years and years and years of waiting on him for it to come about. Well, Joseph finally interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's dreams say that there's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt and seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're now in charge of the nation. In, in the time of plenty, you're going to store up grain. In the time of famine, you're going to distribute the grain. And we saw last time that the famine actually spread beyond Egypt to the whole world. Joseph's brothers came down from Canaan, and they stood before Joseph. Joseph knew who they were. They didn't know who Joseph was. And Joseph acts all you know harsh and mean with them. Not in any vindictive way, but he wants to test them. He doesn't know. Are they the same brothers 22 years ago that sold me into slavery? Or has God been working in their heart? Have they changed or are they willing to change? Joseph noticed that the youngest brother, Benjamin, wasn't there. Joseph could put two and two together, knew his father, knew the father saw Joseph as the favored son. Now Joseph's gone, so now Benjamin is the favored son. He's not there. How are these older brothers going to do now that the new favorite son, what happens when he gets shown favor? Have they changed? Or are they the same rascals 22 years ago that sold him into slavery? So Joseph is setting up this circumstance, not in any way as payback, but in every way as a test to see if they have changed. Well, look at chapter 43, verse 1. Remember, they can't go back to Egypt Joseph says, unless Benjamin comes with them. That was the stipulation Joseph gave last time. Verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Just a little food. You know, surely that's, you can do that without taking Benjamin. It's okay for you to go back and just buy a little food interesting. He knew exactly what was required, but he wasn't willing to send Benjamin. So Judah steps up, verse 3, with the voice of reason. 
Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, or Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned us, particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. How could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. So, twice, two round trips to Egypt and back would be about 900 miles, roughly, or seven weeks hard travel. So it's been almost two months now of them of of Jacob kicking the can down the road and every day less and less grain are in these sacks till finally the sacks hang limp and he's like well go buy us just a little more and Judah's like no we're not going to waste our time going down there because the man said don't come back unless you bring your brother now Judah remember Judah we haven't seen his name highlighted here, but remember back in chapter 38, right at the beginning of the Joseph story, the Joseph story is all about Joseph, and then we got this weird chapter 38 that's all about Judah and Tamar. It's like, why is that in the Joseph narrative? And we talked about why that's there. But again, Judah comes back into the forefront. He is now part of the story, very much front and center once again. And Judah may have remembered back in chapter 38 the timidity that he had about surrendering his son. Remember, he didn't want to give his son to Tamar because everybody that marries Tamar gets killed, dies. Uh, The Lord strikes him dead. And so he's like, I'm not giving my son to Tamar. So he knew what it was like to withhold the will of God by trying to protect his son. And he knew how ridiculous it was to do that. And so he basically tells his father, look, I will be responsible. We have to go with Benjamin because Benjamin is our meal ticket. No Benjamin, no food, we all die. So finally, verse 11, Jacob surrenders. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand, and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also, and arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty, literally may El Shaddai, grant you compassion in the sight of the man, so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved." Interesting, from the perspective of Jacob and his sons, the famine was the problem. I mean, we need food. So famine's a problem, we get food, problem solved. But from God's perspective, the famine 
was just God's way of revealing the problem. The bigger problem, or problems, we might say, were two. One, Jacob refused to trust God with his sons. Second problem, the brothers' jealous and treacherous hearts. The famine surfaced these problems. The famine wasn't the problem. Famine was what God was using to reveal the true problems. Without the famine, Jacob never would have surrendered Benjamin, and the brothers never would have done what we'll see in the next chapter. Well, here's a principle from the text that we can apply immediately to our lives. God never asks us to understand his sovereign will. Just trust him. God never asks us to understand his sovereign will. Just trust him. Remember, this was Job's challenge. Just tell me why. Why am I suffering? And basically God said, you know what? You can't comprehend the little things on the earth like how to create a planet. How are you going to understand these things in the realm that you're accusing me of? It's the same way in Jacob's life. It's the same way in our lives. God never asks us to understand. He never gives us all we need to understand, but he always gives us what we need to obey. Understanding is really not the harder challenge. It's obeying. It's obeying, isn't it? God's sovereign orchestration of these events wrenched Benjamin from Jacob's fingers. It had to be. And forced him to do what he would never do otherwise, that is trust God with his sons. And God's method hasn't changed. This type of experience, these wrenching experiences in our lives, are the same. God doesn't just do it to hurt us. It's, it hurts because we refuse to let go. You know, if, God, if Jacob were to let go of Benjamin, it wouldn't hurt so bad to have your hands wrenched free from the son that you won't let go of. But God does this in order to free us from our past. Listen to this. God frees us from our past where our fears have fenced us off from our potential. God frees us from our past where our fears have fenced us off from our potential. And only through these wrenching experiences does God force us like a bunch of sheep through, the ga- through a gate, forces us to get out into the broad expanse of the pasture that is his sovereign will of the future. But if we stay in our little fence where it's nice and safe and we don't have to trust God, then we're not going to get to experience what God wants us to experience. It's in these gaps of waiting on God in the middle of the crosswalk that we feel like God is cruel. And because he just stands there while life passes by, you know when you're trying to cross a crosswalk and you see the, the timer going down? It's, uh, it kind of makes you hurry, doesn't it? And if something slows you down, you, you just have these visions of it hitting zero and a car immediately hitting you. That's what I feel like. It's, it's also funny when you uh, – it doesn't happen in Dallas so much. I'm trying to think what uh, cities I've been in where this happens. Um, Anyway, but there's these cities where when you go up and you, you, know, you press the button to, for the crosswalk and then it begins to be okay to walk, it, it'll say, walk, walk, walk. But there was one time where it said it in such a way that it sounded like it was saying, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne. <laughs> I started looking around. and I was, Oh, it's time to walk. 
He wasn't saying Wayne, he was saying walk. But it was in a way they were. They were saying, Wayne, walk. It's that way with the Lord and the crosswalk sometime, and it? it's just like, Wayne, Wayne, hello, Wayne. And I'm just sort of standing there. I don't know, maybe you've noticed when you try to escape the struggle that God has you in, you only run to another struggle of the same kind. The brothers sold Joseph because they were jealous of Joseph. Okay, Joseph's gone. There's always a Benjamin to take his place. Every time we try to wiggle out of the situation that God has us in by not obeying his will, but rather trying to sidestep it somehow, we only find ourselves right back again where we started. This was what happened with Joseph. This is what happened with Jacob. I'm sorry, this is what happened with Joseph's brothers. This is what happened with Jacob. It's what happens with us. God merely changes his agent of change. So think about this in your own life. I'll give you a few examples, none of, none of which may relate to you, but you can make the connection to whatever your life is. For example, that jerk at the office isn't your problem. Uh, neither is your debt. Neither is your marriage. Neither is your neighbor's loud polka music. None of those are the problem. These, like the famine, merely reveal the problem. Me, I'm my problem. I'm my problem. And my marriage is not my problem. My neighbor's polka music is not my problem. These just reveal my problem. I am the problem. And the same is true with you. I don't mean I'm your problem. (laughs) I mean you are your problem. In any situation, our heart is revealed in our office, in our marriage, because that's where we are. And when we ask God for a transfer out of the situation that we're in, the challenge is you can't transfer from you. Wherever you go, there you are, as the saying goes. But thankfully, neither are we stuck because God is in the business of change. You've always got something to trust God with in your life. And sometimes it takes the fiery trials of life to melt the wax that's in our ears to finally get us to hear God when before we wouldn't listen to him. But those fiery trials have a wonderful way of melting that wax that's, that stopped up our, our listening to the Lord. God never asks us to understand his sovereign will, just trust him. Well, the brothers head out, big sigh of relief to them, the, tr- the trip means food for the famine, done. But 22 years, the Lord has also been preparing them for something far more than food, forgiveness. And we will see that next time. But in the meantime, verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. So once again, the brothers are standing there in front of the, the most powerful man, you know, on, in the culture at that time, and this was Joseph. They didn't realize it was his, that uh, it was their brother standing there. They thought it was just the vice regent of Egypt. They still were unaware of Joseph's identity, but Joseph, aware of them, and knew the ten other brothers, the ten older brothers, but Benjamin is standing there as well. 
And Joseph figures this is Benjamin. But remember, when Joseph saw Benjamin last, 22 years ago, Benjamin was 10 years old. Add 22 to 10. You got a 32-year-old man standing there, you know. And Joseph's like, is this your brother? In fact, we're going to see that he asks that very thing. Instead of giving them grain and dismissing them, Joseph turns to his steward and mutters something in Egyptian. And we read what he, what he said, bring the guys to my house, we're going to have lunch at noon. But the brothers evidently didn't hear that, or certainly they didn't understand Egyptian, and they're afraid. They're afraid because of the money situation that happened last time. Verse, look at verse 18. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in, that he may seek an occasion against us and fall on us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. <laughs> I always laugh when I read that. It's like, brother, who cares about the donkeys? If you're going to be slaves, you know, let the donkeys go. But anyway, that's just kind of funny. They're going to take our donkeys. Verse 19. So they came to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the gate and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Remember Simeon? <laughs> Simeon's the guy that Joseph said, you know what, we're going to let one guy stay here while the rest of you go back and bring Benjamin down. Uh, you, Simeon. And so Simeon's been imprisoned all this time. Now, Simeon can do the math. Simeon had a calendar there that he scratched on the wall. Simeon knew that they could have gone back twice by now. So Simeon's thinking, I, they've left me here. I'm here. This is it. And they haven't come. They should have been there in a matter of weeks. And for Simeon, it's been almost two months. Imagine how excited he was when the house steward opened the door one day and said, your brothers are here. Come on out. What a great reunion that would have been. But nothing compared to the re reunion we're going to see next time. Well, verse 18 uh, let's see. We just read verse 18. Verse uh, be 24. Oh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I think about some of the stuff that the Bible leaves out. You know, what, what did Simeon say? You know, how did he feel? What did he do all those two months when he was there in prison and, and uh, realizing that Daddy Jacob doesn't really care about me or they'd have come for me? You know? Um, the Bible leaves out a lot of details we'd love to know. But you've probably noticed that on other topics, remarkably, the Bible does just the opposite. It gives us loads of stuff about minutia that we think, who cares? Like, do we really need nine chapters of First Chronicles to tell us the genealogies? I mean, if you've ever done a Bible reading program through the year and you get to First Chronicles, I mean, it's like, a yawner. Do we really need nine chapters of genealogy? I mean, would our faith fall apart if we didn't know that, hey, Dad, begat, be dead? 
It's in there. Thank goodness. There it is. And what about Deuteronomy? The whole book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law for the second time. Do we need Deuteronomy? What about four Gospels? I mean, wouldn't one Gospel been great? Just stick it all in one place. Why repeat it all? Why does the Bible do what it does? And it repeats all these things. It gives us scores of details about things that we think, well, maybe that's important. On the other hand, I can't point to many places in the scriptures except maybe a couple of spots in Proverbs that tell us how to raise a teenager. <laughs> Talk about practical. I mean, I'd surrender one chapter of First Chronicles for a chapter on how to raise a teenager. <laughs> but you see, we didn't write the Bible. We've all got chapters that we'd like to insert, questions that we would like to ask God. But he tells us uh, it's, I was talking with Grady before class about studying foreign languages. Have you ever tried to study a foreign language? That is tough. I'm still trying to work on English. <laughs> foreign languages are hard sledding, tough sledding. When I was uh, studying biblical Greek and Hebrew, especially in the early stages of it, I just kept asking myself, why, why, does, it, why does it work this way? Why don't they just do it the way that English does it? It makes so much more sense to just do it that way. Because that's what makes sense to us. What we are accustomed to, what we prefer, is the way it ought to be. God operates that way in our lives, or we, we wish he would. We wish that he'd just make everything in English. But instead, our lives end up being this Hebrew-Greek soup of confusion where we're having to trust God instead of understanding everything that God is about. God's word is that way as well. He's going to give us nine chapters of genealogies because in his sovereign plan, it's, there's a purpose for it. Even if we don't understand the purpose, it's there. There's a purpose for it. And that's what we see. All this leads up to Joseph's story. Joseph's story, the chapter that we're in now and the next chapter, 44, and the next, most of the next chapter, 45, focuses on two days, or really morning to morning, which is almost a little more than 24 hours. Three chapters on a little more than 24 hours. That's more content for a 24-hour period than we have in the whole book of Genesis. Why so much focus on this time? Because these chapters focus on the climax of 22 years of Joseph's, the last 22 years of these brothers and Joseph waiting and getting prepped for this moment of life change. You know, it would have been a lot easier for if God had just made it rain. You know, famine happened because it hadn't rained. So it would be a lot easier if you just make it rain, Lord. They'd take care of the famine, we'd all be fine. Yeah, but nobody's life would have changed we'd all still be the grumpy old people that we are. So God sends famines in our lives that force us to let go of our Benjamins, that force us to let go of our petty jealousies toward one another so that we'll change because we won't change. We won't grow to be like Christ otherwise if we don't have the challenges of life. Now, verse 24. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys fodder. Good old donkeys. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. 
When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked about their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. They're in Joseph's house, and he sees Benjamin. It says his mother's son, verse 29. You remember, Joseph and Benjamin were the only children of Rachel, the favorite wife. And so this was his true brother. The, other were, the others were half-brothers. But Benjamin is his true brother. And he sees Benjamin for the first time in 22 years as a full-grown man standing there. And Joseph can't contain his emotion. And he finds that he has to leave. And he finds a place. He goes, he's at his house. He goes into his own private chamber and just bawls. And then finally he puts his mean face back on, washes his face. Verse 31, he washed his face and came out and controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked at one another in astonishment. After washing his face, Joseph comes back in the room and has his composure together again. And as much as he longed for reconciliation, they had proven that they weren't thieves because they brought the money back. So they're not thieves, definitely. They've got integrity when it comes to money. They could have said nothing, but they didn't. They, they came back with that much. So you, you would think, Joseph would think, you know what, this would be a great time. Here we are to just go ahead and reveal myself, just reconcile. But they still needed testing to see if they had changed. They'd return the money, yep, but their father had told them to return the money. How would they do when the only thing prompting them was God? Not daddy, not a situation where, you know, they would have to fess up to dad, but how would they respond when God did the prompting? God's about to test them further through the wise arrangement of Joseph's plan. So to further sort of emphasize or underscore God's involvement in the scene, Joseph had them seated according to their age. How in the world could anyone have known that? No one. I mean, they, they, how did they know? They realized that God was involved. Now, God was involved through Joseph. Joseph knew. But something else would have been highlighted when they did that. If you sit together without being in order, no big deal. But when you sit together in order, There is a place missing. Joseph's not there. In fact, I wonder if they even had a seat empty that the elephant in the room sat in. Joseph served the food to the brothers from his own table. But notice what it says here. It says that that he served, uh, verse 34, he took portions to them from his own table, but 
Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Benjamin, the favored son back in Israel, or back in Canaan, is now the favored son again here in Egypt. He gets five times as much. So everyone's eaten, and then Joseph sends more food to Benjamin. Okay? And then more food to Benjamin. Okay? And then more food. Five times as much. I mean, Benjamin's like, look, Grandma, not one more slice of pie. (laughs) How would these brothers react to that? Daddy's not around. Joseph is setting up the situation for a deja vu. He's setting up the situation, especially as we see next time, when he hooks Benjamin as to doing some wrong. Are the brothers going to leave the favored son in Egypt again and go home to daddy and make up some lie like they did before? It's a perfect opportunity for them to repeat what they've done. Or had they changed? This is what Joseph was trying to figure out. I don't know if you've ever sat downwind of nepotism But I'm telling you, it stinks. How would they respond to the favored son getting special treatment? Joseph, it says to their credit, instead of reacting jealousy toward Benjamin, verse 34, we're told they ate freely with him. That's amazing. That's amazing. The statement there in the very last line of this chapter, so they feasted and drank freely. They were okay with it. Amazing. Amazing. Yes, it looked like they'd passed the test of jealousy. Great. That was a test they had botched 22 years earlier. But it it seems a great time now, Joseph, to reconcile. Go ahead and do it. But there's one more test to go, which we'll see next time. So here's a second principle. Here's a second principle that it has to do with Benjamin getting five times as much. God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. Just trust him. God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. Just trust him. Hmm. Have you ever heard of FOMO? F-O-M-O? F-O-M-O. It means fear of missing out. And it is a true when you say malady, I don't see a disease, but it's a true state of mind. And people are guided in life by this fear. That if I don't go, I'm going to miss out. If I don't go to this party, they're never going to invite me to a party again. If I don't do such and so, it's never going to happen again. I will miss out. The fear of missing out, it can be a consuming, controlling thing in life. And I know you don't struggle with that, and I don't struggle with that. So it's just, you know, we'll just forget it. But the fact is, other people's lives often seem better than yours. Have you noticed that? Always seems better. Even their struggles seem better than your struggles. And I'm not just talking Facebook. I mean, everywhere we look, it seems like God has been unfair to us and has been extremely generous to other people. When we compare other people and we look at them, at their abilities, at their salaries, at their bodies, even their biblical knowledge... Or, 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 you can just add in the blank of whatever it is that we compare to others. We've got usually one of two reactions when, we, when, when someone else gets five times as much, however you want to say it. For Benjamin, it was food. For the rest of us, 
it might be something different. But the reality is you get one of two reactions. One, it's envy. Lord, why can't I have that? If I had that, life would be great. That's one reaction. Another reaction is comparison and the sense of pride. Well, I'm not like that. And so you got two different extremes. One of envy, one of pride. Both are wrong. God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. Rather, we just trust him. Remember the scene in Jesus' life at the end of the book of John, John chapter 21. It's after the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to his disciples up at the Sea of Galilee. And that was that scene where they fished all night. They caught nothing. They see this lone figure on the shore. You with me? Jesus calls them up and they have breakfast. Well, and of course, you know, Jesus has this conversation with Peter and basically tells Peter, look, Peter, I'm not done with you. There's still going to be a future for you. You get a second chance. And Peter's like, oh, that's great. And then Jesus tells Peter, oh, by the way, when you're old, here's how you're going to die. You get, your arms are going to be stretched out, and you're going to be led to some place where you don't want to go. So he's basically saying, you're going to be crucified. And we know from church tradition that's exactly what happened. Peter was crucified at his own request upside down in Rome. In fact, St. Peter's Square in Rome is a stone's throw from where he was actually crucified. So Jesus tells Peter, Here's how you're going to die. Well, the text says that they looked around and saw John following them. And so Peter, what does he say? What about him, Lord? How's he going to die? Come on, you can tell me. Torture? Crucifixion? You know what Jesus said to him? And I quote John 21, 22, What is that to you? You follow me. And in the original language, you is emphasized. What is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about others. Don't compare. God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. When we do that, all we're doing is comparing icebergs, you know, the tips of icebergs. We never compare what's below the surface. We're just comparing tips of icebergs because that's all we see. But there's everybody's got what's below the surface. Howard Hendricks, the, the beloved prof from Dallas Seminary of uh, when I was there, and uh, many who went there, good grief, prof was there for a long time. Anyway, he would occasionally, he was as funny as he was profound. And if any of you ever heard prof teach or preach, you realize the guy missed his calling. He should have been a stand-up comic. What's this wasting your time at teaching at Dallas Seminary? No, he was, he was as funny as he was profound, and occasionally he would act like a dimwit and, you know, wipe his nose. If you've ever seen Prof teach, you've seen him wipe his nose because that's what he did. And he would do it to kind of make fun. You know, uh, he, would, he would sort of set up a straw man, and the straw man always wiped his nose and, uh, to make a point. And it was so effective. I mean, in fact, it was so effective, he did it all the time. And some of his students began doing that because they so admired Prof. They'd be preaching, and they'd be going along, and they'd wipe their nose. And finally, this is a true story, finally one of the students' wives said, quit wiping your nose while you teach. You look stupid. He says, well, it works for prof. You're not prof. Just be you. What great advice. Not the stupid part, but the part about just be you. The world doesn't need another prof. One's enough. But we do need you. 
Just be yourself. Don't compare. Even when we idolize or or admire other people, uh, you don't have to be them. Be you. Just trust the Lord. Our sovereign God chose every one of us to be saved in the exact same way, by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. That's how we're saved. But even though we're saved the same way, we don't serve God the same way. He has gifted us multiple ways. I'm not gifted like you are. You're not gifted like I am. We are all uniquely poised to contribute to the body of Christ and the world at large in a very unique way. And when we try to impersonate a gift that we lack, we're really holding back the greatest gift that we can give to others, and that's ourselves. So God never wants us to compare with others. Just trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He is sovereign down to the last detail of our lives. So the principles, once again here, God never asks us to understand his sovereign will, just trust him. And second, God never wants us to compare ourselves with others, just trust him. Um, This week, Kathy and I were talking about, I'm trying to think what movie we were watching. It was some movie about... um, Oh, it was a movie on the Passion Week. It was one of mine. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> Didn't even remember. So we were watching one of my videos, and it, it was about how the... <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, we were talking about the fact that between the, be, between the time that Jesus died and Resurrection Sunday was the Sabbath. And the Sabbath required a rest so that, you know, and we were talking about the fact that that the disciples had all of Saturday basically as a forced rest to think about the fact of what have they had denied the Lord and uh, abandoned the Lord in his hour of need. Anyway, Kathy made this great observation. She said, you know, isn't it interesting how when the Lord created the world and then he rested because he was done with his creation and then the Sabbath came, boom. And then when the Lord died on the cross for our sins, he said, it is finished, and then the Sabbath came, boom. She said, isn't that an interesting connection? And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I thought of that. <laughs> I've never thought, have you ever thought of that? Isn't that a great connection? How the Lord rested from creation and then rested, and then when he redeemed all creation, he rested. And he said when the Lord had completed everything that he's done, he said he rested, and then Jesus says it is finished, and then the Sabbath that's great. I just love that. And Kathy and her uniqueness contributed that to our class. <laughs> I didn't. I'm just the messenger that gets to pass that along. We all have these unique contributions to the body of Christ, and we all should make them. God never asks us to understand his sovereign will. Just trust him. God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. Just trust him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are so grateful for the life of Joseph. Here he is as a man who has endured such injustice. And when the power was his to bring about payback, instead he was still focused on reconciliation. That you'd work so much in his heart that he was now your tool. Through his pain, he was a more effective tool for reconciliation and life change. 
Our Father, that's who we want to be. We don't want to just wiggle out of our struggles because we know we just head right back into something else. Strengthen us through them. Change us through them. Give us the willingness to let go of our Benjamins, to let go of our petty jealousies and comparisons. Give us the strength to be ourselves and to trust you in your sovereign appointments in our lives. And we ask that as we do that, that you would not only work the change in our lives, but that we would be the agents of change and grace in the lives of others. Thank you once again for the scripture that gives us insight not into just history and biblical principles, but gives us insight into our own hearts and our own need before you and before others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. I hope you all have a blessed week. Bring somebody with you next week to hear Wayne's teaching and to share the blessings of this class. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.